It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. There is a cardinal rule in television. You pretty much can't get around it. And that is simply this. You can't have dead air. And what it means is, even if it's a slow holiday week between Christmas and New Year's and most of your top line anchors and correspondents and hosts and contributors are off, you got to have something to put on. I, by the way, am here at Fox Today working. I'll be on the special report panel tonight. But, you know, I understand people taking time off. But nevertheless, with whatever team you have, you got to have some kind of programming. The same was true in all my years in newspapers. When newspapers simply meant, it was before the age of the interwebs, you know, that there was this physical product with printing presses. You got the ink on your fingers. And you either bought it at the newsstand or it was delivered to your home. Something had to come out. Something had to fill those pages. You couldn't say, well, you know, just go back and read yesterday's paper. Once in a while, newspapers don't publish on actual holidays. But, you know, they can't just obviously disappear for a week. But on the web, uh, let's just say with lots of people taking time off. And, look, everybody works hard and this is the time to do it and be with family. And I get all that. I go through the websites every day because I'm gathering stuff for all of my different jobs. And man, a lot of it just looks like the same as it was yesterday and the day before. Sometimes there'll be like one or two different stories at the top just to give the impression that there's a new publication. And then you say, well, I saw that one yesterday. That one's like a week old. I've, I've seen stories that have been hanging around for two weeks during this period. And, you know, I think people instinctively understand the lower down you scroll, the more you get to the older stuff. That's true even during a busy week. Uh, but when it's a, it's a skeleton staff week and it's not a big news week, um, you know, it's, they're not quite hanging up the gone fishing signs, but let's just say there's not a lot of catches there. Uh, and so, you know, maybe it's a good time to catch up on stuff that you missed or maybe you just go to Netflix or Amazon Prime, or Hulu, or HBO Max, and, you know, do something that has nothing to do with the news. But nevertheless, that's not to say I don't have plenty of good stuff for you today, the second to last day of 2021. Before we get into this, well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about John Madden, because I was gathering some info on him for a little tribute I'm going to do on my Sunday show. Uh, Madden passing away uh, at the age of 85 uh, just the other day, and I've talked about, you know, incredible NFL coach and also incredible football broadcaster. Uh, What I had forgotten was back in 1993, when there was no Fox News, there was a Fox broadcast network with a fledgling sports division. And even the Fox broadcast network, you know, it didn't have a full slate of programming. It was, you know, it was like a poor cousin of ABC, CBS, and NBC. But in something that absolutely shocked the television world, Rupert Murdoch, at the time, outbid CBS for the rights to NFL games. It had been on CBS forever. CBS and NBC basically split the NFL games, and ABC had Monday Night Football, which was a very big deal at the time. Remember, this is in an era when, you know, many, 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 many more people watched network television. That is the case today when you have all these alternatives. So along comes Murdoch, and he just bids this outrageous sum of money, over a billion and a half dollars over a few years, takes the NFL games away from CBS. And John Madden had been the color guy in the booth with Pat Summerall and others over the years for CBS. Suddenly, 
Madden's got no games to broadcast. So Fox hires him, and just the simple hiring of John Madden, you know, who continues to work for four networks overall, but he continued with Fox for at least a decade. I don't have the exact time period in front of me. Brought instant credibility to Fox Sports. And, you know, in, in fairness, and this is long before I ever dreamed I would work for Fox or any part of Fox, um, part of the Fox presentation, it was going to have more cameras at, at the games, more angles, more replays, fancier graphics, and a lot of that became mainstream. Other people copied it. Um, but it was not immediately apparent it would be a huge success because in a lot of markets, you know, mid-sized television markets, Fox was on UHL. You even old enough to know what UHF is. It was VHF and UHF. And, U, and the VHF was channels 1 through 13. And then the UHF, which were just tended to be fuzzier, sometimes you couldn't quite get it. Uh, you had to adjust your antenna, uh, was 14 to, I don't know, 83 or something. So you didn't want to be on UHF. Now, of course, that distinction no longer exists. Anyway, just a little historical tidbit about uh, John Madden. And um, I saw this essay in the New York Times by Abby Ellen that really made me sit up in my chair. This woman said she was addicted to Diet Coke. After I discovered Diet Coke in 1982, she writes, I drank at least three to four 12-ounce cans nearly every day for the next four decades, no matter where I was. At various times, I tried to stop, but I could never deprive myself for longer than a week. As a non-coffee drinker, it was my morning beverage. All right, so this is hitting a little uncomfortably close for home because I don't drink coffee either. Just I don't like it. But sometimes I need caffeine, and sometimes I need caffeine in the morning. I like Coke Zero. I, I think it's far superior to Diet Coke. You probably heard me say that. Um, but I never thought of myself as addicted to it. I mean, I guess, you know, if you get in the habit, like anything, I mean, coffee can be addictive too because of the caffeine, right? But when I'm not working, sometimes I don't drink it and it's, it's not a particularly big deal for me. But I didn't know that this, that this concept existed. She goes on to talk about, <laughs> this is funny, in a 2007 study, laboratory rats were forced to choose between saccharin, you know, these diet sodas use either saccharin or aspartame. And, and actual cocaine, 94% of the rats chose the artificial sweetener. So they wanted Diet Coke over regular Coke, actual Coke. Anyway, as I write this, I'm on day 41. I stopped suddenly. This, by the way, is a Facebook group of people who are trying to quit. Uh, the first few days were rough. My head pounded from caffeine withdrawal. I lived on Tylenol. I couldn't concentrate, concentrate without a can of soda. Uh, but I'm planning on continuing. Uh, good, good for you. I don't think anybody should be addicted to anything. If it's a habit that you need to break, that's fine. Uh, I'll maybe be a little more wary about my Coke Zero consumption. All right, a lot of serious stuff in the world going on, beginning with story number one, and that, of course, is COVID and Omicron. And, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with the numbers, and I've been telling you on this podcast for many months now, um, when the numbers go down, when the numbers go up, average daily new cases, you know, we're going, we're going up by about 20,000 a day. So I've come here and say, look, it had been 70 and now it's 120 and now it's going to 140. And now it's gone to 160. And then record breaking case, new cases of COVID in the United States shattered the all time record in the pandemic. And yesterday, yesterday, I mean, even though I'm used to these big numbers, just eye popping. The new daily case total, just for Wednesday, topped 488,000. 
to nearly half a million people coming down with COVID-19, whether it's Delta, whether it's Omicron, or some other version of the virus. The seven-day average, 301,000. These are stunning figures. I mean, it is just, if you had one of those charts, you'd just see it going north, uh, like, like suddenly shooting up like a rocket. I mean, that means if these numbers hold, It'll be about a million new cases every two days, and who knows if the rate will increase even more. Now, hopefully, it burns itself out, and and, and that chart, you see the numbers start to come down. But this is unbelievable. In the past week alone, more than 2 million new cases have been reported nationally. Um, And there's a related debate here that's really important. Separate New York Times story on this. It's about testing. And, you know, I've gone on and on and on about what a failure this was by the Biden administration, and I believe that. You see the long lines that are continuing. People, particularly if they're going away for the holidays or they just want to know, is it safe to be around family members, to go to work, you name it. But now some of these rapid at-home tests are, you know, you you go to the drugstores and they're sold out, but that's because they're flying off the shelves. So this piece says, look, first of all, these tests are not always that accurate. They're not like the PCR test where it takes two or three days to get the results. I mean, they're a useful screening device, but they're not anywhere near 100% accurate. But secondly, when you get these at-home tests, these results are not being reported to public health departments, uh, which is means we have less and less of a clear picture. In other words, clearly, even when I read you these staggering numbers, 488,000 new cases, a lot of people take the test home they, some portion of them test positive and they're not calling into the county health department. They're just, you know, using that information to self-isolate or do whatever they decide to do. So the number, the eye-popping numbers that we're talking about, if anything, are a severe undercounting. And so that now is raising this debate. Do counts of coronavirus cases serve a useful purpose? And if not, should they be continued? Here's a guy who's chief medical officer at the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. Our entire approach to the pandemic has been case-based surveillance. We have to count every case, and that's just not accurate anymore, says this doctor. Um, now, one home testing company is trying to arrange to report the results to health authorities, but others, you know, it's just not practical. It's ultimately voluntary in most cases. Um, and so a lot of policies about, you know, shutdowns and school openings and school testings are based on these numbers. And so some people are now saying, well, we should move to a system that we have with the flu. We we don't report the results every single day. Maybe it's once a week. And then you extrapolate from those numbers. Uh, The FDA says that these so-called antigen tests do detect the Omicron variant, but not as effectively as they detect other variants. So now you have a problem upon problem. The positive results are not known to public officials. And also, you might have Omicron and not know it because, according to the FDA at least, the tests are just not that good or able to pick up that particular variant of COVID-19. So some people are looking at this and saying, yeah, isn't that convenient? You know, we were all obsessed with the number of new cases Uh, in 2020 when Donald Trump was president. 
But now that the cases seem to be soaring again, shattering new records during the Biden administration, oh, you know, some of these scientists are saying, well, it doesn't really make sense to count these every day, and we got to take the focus off this. I understand that political argument, but there is a substantive argument beneath this, which is if the cases are being severely undercounted because of the surge in home testing, and you want that, and you want these 500 million home tests that the Biden administration belatedly finally got around to ordering, which most of which have not even been produced yet. Almost all of them haven't been produced yet because, you know, the companies that make this stuff got to ramp up, right? But if those numbers can't be relied upon, then do we have to start thinking of the pandemic and the numbers game in a different way? Uh, here's uh, Stephanie Friedhoff, professor at Brown University School of Public Health. The reason we got here is because the virus moves so fast. If you're five days behind, you're already in the infectious period for many people. As long as we're in the Omicron wave, we need to understand our daily numbers as best we can. In other words, some uh, scientists like this professor are arguing that, yes, in the longer term, we have to get away from the fixation on numbers because we just, there's no way. And by the way, it takes a lot of manpower um, for these public health agencies nationally on the state level, locally, to try to track all these cases. And could that labor be better used doing other things if, in fact, we have uh, no way of really keeping up now with the number of cases? I don't know how that debate's going to play out, but um, there's prominent stories today in the Washington Post and New York Times about it. And there are obviously political implications as well. By the way, you know, you're getting different levels of warnings from some of these experts. A guy you see on MSNBC a lot, Michael Osterholm, uh, he is a member of Biden's COVID-19 advisory board. He runs the Center for Infectious Disease at University of Minnesota. And he says in the next three or four weeks, we're going to have a hard time keeping everyday life operating, said this on Morning Joe. Right now we have a very imperfect situation. It's going to require some very imperfect responses. Over the next three to four weeks, Osterholm says, we're going to see the number of cases in this country rise so dramatically that we'll have a hard time keeping everyday life operating. Already we're seeing it in our healthcare system, where we can lose 10 to 20% of healthcare workers who are not available to work. We're seeing that right now in critical infrastructure areas where people can't come to work. For example, New York transit systems in that region delayed this week because they didn't have enough people showing up. We've seen it with the airlines. That, in my view, is the real reason. Fauci has been candid about this. Uh, Walensky has not. That suddenly the CDC says, you know what, this whole 10-day isolation thing, forget about that. We'll do five days. Because they don't want all these shutdowns. It's almost like a reverse shutdown, a reverse lockdown. In the bad old days of 2020, you had presidents, governors, mayors, county executives saying, we got to close down because we got to keep people at home. They can't go to work. They can't go to school. Now you have the same public officials saying we can't shut down. We can't lock down at this point in the economy. Um, but it's happening anyway in certain industries. And I'm really worried about the overtaxed uh, hospital systems. Um, simply because so many people are getting this virus and then they have to isolate and they can't go to work because they could be giving it to other people. Speaking of numbers, you know, we talk a lot about the impact of COVID-19 on the economy, but the White House is very excited over new numbers today, very excited in the sense that they're all over Twitter on it, uh, that shows a number of new jobless claims 
dropping below 200,000. It had been, when Biden took office, over 800,000. So naturally, you know, if, there's, if unemployment is that low, any president would want to take credit for that. Uh, but, you know, so at the same time, the jobless claims are going way down. And by the way, you know, because Omicron does not seem to be as devastating and because about 62% of the population is vaccinated, um, the death toll has not really moved all that much despite this unbelievable surge in new COVID-19 cases. Unfortunately, the hospitalization numbers are really starting to rise, particularly in certain areas, because you don't, you know, even if a small fraction of people who get this need to be hospitalized, need to go to the ICU, it doesn't take that much to overwhelm these systems. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number two, Ghislaine Maxwell found guilty on five of six counts of essentially being an enabler of her one-time boyfriend and longtime business partner, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, in this sex trafficking trial where it looked like it might be headed for a mistrial. Certainly the judge, after the jury had deliberated for five or six days and, and worried about COVID, forcing a mistrial, says, you're going to stay in there. You're going to deliberate over New Year's weekend till you get a verdict. And look, it only takes one holdout to cause a mistrial. But in the end, the jurors all came together on five of these six counts uh, to find that Ghislaine Maxwell, in fact, was guilty of recruiting teenage girls to give uh, Epstein these massages at his homes in Palm Beach in New York and New Mexico over a 10-year period. Uh, he paid these girls hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash for these massages, which involved sexual touching. You know, it just makes my stomach turn to have to go through all the details. And I know that the defense for Ghislaine Maxwell was, you know, Epstein was a terrible guy, but he died in prison, ruled a suicide. And so all of the anger at what he did being unfairly focused on Ghislaine. But look, the jury heard the evidence. Uh, the jury heard from four different women uh, who were girls at the time. Uh, only one used her name. Two, three others either used a, synonym, a pseudonym, excuse me, or, you know, maybe only one of their names. And found, in fact, that Elaine Maxwell was the woman who, um, you know, recruited these teenage girls. She made them feel safe. She paid a lot of attention to them and she normalized the sense of giving these massages and whatever else went on. Um, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams, saying unanimous jury has found Ghislaine guilty of one of the worst crimes imaginable, facilitating and participating in the sexual abuse of children. The road to justice has been far too long, but today justice has been done. She faces up to 65 years in prison uh, today's verdict is a towering victory, says another attorney uh, who represented one of the accusers, Annie Farmer. She's the only one who used her name when she testified. Uh, not just for the brave women who testified in this trial, but for women around the world whose young and tender lives were diminished and damaged by the abhorrent actions of Ghislaine Maxwell. For too long, their voices were ignored and discounted. Remember, that was that earlier trial in Palm Beach where Maxwell excuse me, not Maxwell, where Epstein pled and got off with an appallingly light sentence. Some of these girls were as young as 14 years old at the time of their encounters 
with Epstein. And they looked to Maxwell as a kind of a buffer and a chaperone between them and this zillionaire. She facilitated the massage appointments. She gave instructions on what he liked, according to the testimony. She sometimes arranged their flights and other travel details when they visited his various homes. Maxwell, as an assistant U.S. attorney during closing arguments, was a sophisticated predator who knew exactly what she was doing. And there's zero controversy about this. I mean, everyone thinks that this was just heinous. Uh, the media expected her to be convicted. She has been convicted. There's nobody that I've seen hollering, oh, she didn't get a fair trial. Uh, they can appeal all they want, but I don't think that's going anywhere. Number three, lawyers for Donald Trump telling the Supreme Court yesterday that a Washington Post interview with uh, Congressman Benny Thompson, the chairman of the House January 6th committee, shows that Congress is trying to establish a criminal complaint against Trump, which, according to the Trump lawyers, uh, is beyond the committee's authority. So this harkens back to a Washington Post article of just a few days ago in which Congressman Thompson said the committee is looking into Trump's actions on January 6th as it considers whether or not to recommend that the Justice Department open a criminal investigation of Trump and perhaps others. Uh, Trump's lawyer is saying the Washington Post has confirmed what was already apparent. The committee is indeed seeking to excuse, any excuse, excuse me, to refer a political rival for criminal charges, and they're using this investigation to do so. Um, and Thompson was quoted in this piece as saying, you know, Congress is looking into this, and one of the concerns is dereliction of duty, and our concern is whether or not, not is whether or not it was intentional, whether or not that lack of attention uh, would warrant a referral. Now, look, this argument that Congress is really trying to, you know, bring criminal charges against Trump, you know, Congress makes referrals to DOJ all the time. You're seeing that now with the defiance of the subpoenas by Mark Meadows, by Steve Bannon, and others. You know, if con Congress has, it's in the, a legitimate constitutional oversight role. If Congress comes across, you know, Congress also makes referrals when it decides that a witness under oath has committed perjury. Congress has and should not have any power to prosecute. But you kick it over to DOJ and you let professional criminal prosecutors say, okay, there's a crime here that's been committed or we don't have enough evidence of a crime. And it's always been that way. So I think that's a pretty weak link. But meanwhile, according to this Wall Street Journal piece, you look at the polls about January 6th. Recent Quinnipiac poll found 93% of Democrats, 56% of independents said uh, January 6th was an attack on the government. Only 29% of Republicans said the same. Pew Research found a declining share of Republicans who believe it's important the rioters be prosecuted. 57% expressed support for prosecuting the rioters in September, down from 79% in March. While Dems say, 95% of Dems say, yeah, of course it's important the rioters should be prosecuted. Three out of four Republicans in an NPR PBS poll, this is in October, said Trump was right to question whether the election was rigged due to real cases of fraud that changed the results. Now, that's an interesting wording. Not, they don't have to say, well, yes, we believe that fraud was resulted, uh, resulted, that there actually was actual fraud in the 2020 presidential election. But they say that Trump is right to question it. Well, if you like Donald Trump, support Donald Trump, of course you're going to say yes. All right, story number four, uh, National Review piece by Rich Lowry. It has to do with this incident. President Biden was making Christmas calls. And I, I, I had vowed not to get into this because I just think it's so stupid. 
But one of the guys he called said, let's go Brandon, which as you know is, you know, everybody, most people now know is a euphemism for F. Joe Biden. And Biden didn't quite know what to say, so he said, yeah, I agree or something. And so Lowry is saying, uh, did he not know the meaning of the slur, even though it's been displayed on signs and shouted out at events? And he uses that as a jumping off point to say what's going on with Biden's mental acuity. He goes on to say unscripted moments in the Biden White House are rare indeed. Uh, the White House has adopted the same bunker mentality that it used in the 2020 campaign. And he recites the statistics that I've shared many times in columns and on television and with you about how few interviews Biden has done compared to Obama, compared to Trump, compared to just about any modern president. Okay, here's, here's Lowry's argument. The media haven't always been so leery of bringing up the issue of a president's ability to stay sharp. A faltering Reagan performance back in the 1984 presidential debate with Walter Mondale, I remember this vividly, prompted this New York Times headline, Fitness Issue, New Question in Race, Is Oldest U.S. President Now Showing His Age? Reagan debate performance invites open speculation on his ability to serve. Well, Reagan came back with a much better debate, and that was sort of the end of that. President Trump also put under the microscope, if, remember, he was kind of awkwardly holding a glass, and when he very slowly went down a ramp after a speech, remember, that was a story for like a week. A lot of media attention to that. Uh, in Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, uh, the, those two reported that Biden advisors were keeping the president away from unscripted events for fear that he might misspeak. So what Lowry is saying is, look, it's okay to talk about this. It was talked about with Trump. It was talked about with Reagan. And if Joe Biden at the age of 79 is sort of not getting it, and look, on this whole let's go Brandon thing, I mean, the guy's got a country to run. He's not on Twitter all day like everybody uh, who critiques these things. But I don't disagree. It's fair game. It's fair game if he makes mistakes. Uh, anything's fair game when it comes to president. I don't think it's fair for, you know, people who've never met Joe Biden to just go on TV and say, the guy's senile. He can't string two sentences together. And that's clearly not the case. But as he slowed up, is he missing things? Does he have trouble articulating his positions at times? Yeah. Um, you know, what Lowry obviously suggesting here is the press is protecting President Biden, that there's a double standard. And there certainly is a double standard when you compare it to Trump's coverage. But at the same time, Donald Trump, did and said a whole lot of things that are nothing like Joe Biden. So it's hard to compare it. When, when, when Biden is getting a pass, as I think he did on the testing, as I think he did for a long time on the coronavirus, I call it out and I say the media are not being tough enough on him. When Biden doesn't get a pass, as in the absolute debacle of the Afghan withdrawal, as in the mess at the border and other things, then I say, you know, the press has decided to be tough on him, at least on this issue. But it's worth taking a look at as, as 2021 comes to a close and what kind of coverage is Biden going to get in 2022. I will say again, he ought to do more interviews and be more accessible to reporters' questions because that's part of the job. And I think if he did it more often, he would get more polished at it. And I've said the same about Kamala Harris and that whole Charlemagne the God mess. Um, and each particular midstep wouldn't misstep wouldn't get the kind of coverage that goes on for a week. It would just be more routine. But now it's an event if Joe Biden 
uh, suddenly decides to talk to ABC's David Moore, suddenly decides to do one of those Anderson Cooper town halls, uh, or goes on with Jimmy Fallon and tells a bunch of jokes. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's go to number five, which is about the metaverse. I don't pretend to completely understand the metaverse, but New York Times has this major piece saying the metaverse is coming. This is the next big thing. You know, this reminds me of a lot of things that were going to be the next big thing. Google Glasses were going to be the next big thing. The uh, Apple Watch. You know, a lot of people have Apple Watches and they like them, but it hasn't exactly taken the world by storm. But now, the metaverse. You know, Facebook has changed its name to Meta. And um, what the Times piece says is the industry believes that now virtual reality could be the centerpiece of a new business, just the way that apps and smartphones uh, and web browsers exploded onto the scene back in the 1990s. Uh, so it also could bring new scrutiny of issues like privacy and who does what to whom. There's a companion piece. And I talked about this before. It was reported by The Verge, I believe, about groping and harassment in these virtual reality worlds. And you can say, well, it's not the same because you can always just turn it off or take the goggles off or whatever. But, you know, why should women be harassed, groped, um, ridiculed uh, in, a, in a, quote, physical way, I say with air quotes, if they're trying to enjoy the, these arenas that everybody else gets to enjoy? Okay. So it was back in 2014 that Facebook paid more than $2 billion to acquire Oculus, a startup that made virtual reality headsets. And now Zuckerberg is convinced that the metaverse will pervade daily life well beyond the sort of gamers who like to play these games. New avenues for buying goods and services, communicating with friends and family, collaborating with colleagues. But, you know, these headsets, as the Times points out, are big and cumbersome. Sometimes they make people sick. They totally cover the eyes, separating people from the world around them. So I don't know. I, I don't think it's ever going to be, you know, we're all walking around with these headsets and we are stumbling around and can bump into other people. I think the future, if there is a future in this, and, you know, maybe there's not. Maybe it's always going to be a niche product. But Apple is one of the companies trying to improve these headsets to the point where, you know, you could put them on like ski goggles. You could still see the real world. You know the real talking about, but maybe you could flash up before your eyes certain facts and figures you're looking for without completely separating from IRL in real life. But Apple is facing certain technological hurdles there. Uh, many experts argue Zuckerberg's vision will be realized only through lightweight eyeglasses that can layer digital images onto what you see in the real world, and that's called augmented reality. You know, people could check sports scores as they're walking down the street. The numbers float in front of them. I wouldn't want anybody to do well behind the wheel, but of course, maybe they'll be behind the Tesla or these other self-driving cars. I don't know. It all sounds very exciting. And at the same time, it all sounds very brave new world. And I'm just going to be skeptical about how quickly this is coming. Maybe that makes me sound like an old-fashioned person. Um, maybe this is all going to happen next year, or maybe it'll take another 10 years. Whatever, I feel very safe in saying Silicon Valley wants to make a lot of money off this. And if there's a market there, they'll create it. And ultimately, those of us who are not 20-somethings or teens will be dragged along, just as we probably never thought we'd be on Facebook. We probably never thought we'd be walking around getting the news on a phone uh, or being able to watch you know, just about any movie in the universe on a phone 
uh, a tablet or on a TV screen at home. You know, it used to be you had to wait for the movie to come on. You say, okay, it's on 8 o'clock on ABC. I'm going to watch this movie. And you couldn't pick and choose. Now, people would find it intolerable if they can't get anything they want. Also, any music that they want at any time. For a fee, of course. Well, I'll be back tomorrow uh, with the final podcast of 2021. Sounds weird to say that. As always, I appreciate your being along for the ride. Remember, Google Podcasts, your Amazon device, Apple Music, Spotify, Apple iTunes. Lots of places to get it. Back here tomorrow with more Buzz. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.